Welcome, everybody, to the podcast collection. On today's episode of the podcast, we have uh, Brandon and uh, Desmond. They're both from the SCM group of companies. Desmond's from Xperra, and we've got Brandon from Perio, and we're discussing fraud and fires and just all the different aspects of how to investigate that stuff and kind of some tips and pointers with regards to it. So sit back, guys, relax. This is a great podcast, lots of answered questions, and uh, lots of really new and interesting information. Uh, with regards to open source information again, as well as other stuff that just, uh, it's really good. Don't forget, guys, if you want to be on the Trivia Show podcast, you need to email kieran at doherty664.com. That's his email address, pretty simple, kieran at doherty664.com, and uh, we'll get you on the podcast. Looking forward to having somebody new on the podcast this month. Talk to you soon, guys. It's Terry Doherty, and uh, today we have uh, Brandon Northrup and uh, Desmond Teljard. Welcome, guys, and thank you very much for being on the show today. Thank you for having us, Terry. Thank you, Terry. Um, Desmond, last time we spoke, we spoke about uh, some different types of claims and stuff and uh, some different types of offenders. So if we can take off from there, and you can, we can just kind of talk about them briefly, and then we can move right into what Brandon focuses on. Yeah, that, that's correct, Terry. Uh, you know, one of the things we touched on on our last uh, uh, discussion was, you know, you've got three different types of offenders when it comes to insurance fraud. Um, that being the average offender, um, uh, the criminal offender, and then the organized crime uh, offender. So there's three different levels, and we, we, we went into that in depth, which, um, you know, we won't go into that again today. But safely to say that, um, you know, you've got those three types of offenders ranging from the opportunistic, uh, inflation, you know, my house is burgled, and... Uh, hey, I'm going to throw a couple of extra things uh, into that. Right down to the organized crime where you've got staged accidents, um, where you've, you've put in uh, health workers um, and you start using, um, you start pulling other people into, into your crime with you to, to the tow truck company, for instance, as well. So you've got that extreme and we won't go into that. So we'll, we'll, we'll jump straight into uh, the red flags um, of, of uh, fraud when it comes to arson. And, and there's a couple of you know, components to that as well, where, which is why we've got Brendan from Perio in with us today. And I'll let Brendan, just as, as he starts speaking, maybe just do a brief introduction of his background, because um, he has a very interesting background um, as a fire chief and a lot of experience when it comes to fire scenes. And um, so we'll, we'll, we'll let him talk about you know, those signs and then I'll maybe jump in uh, here and there talking about the, uh, besides the actual physical signs of arson at a fire scene, but then also as it pertains to the type of person um, that's uh, claiming um, from, uh, claiming when it comes to, to, to arson or a fire scene. So, uh, you know, I'll just let you, Brendan, Brandon, if you just want to introduce yourself and a little bit of your background and we'll take it from there. Okay. Thanks, uh, Desmond. Uh, so as a, you, alluded to uh, in in our uh, introduction of myself. I come from a skilled trade background initially. So I'm a sheet metal worker by trade, uh, migrated into the fire service. Uh, I've been 18 years uh, in the fire service. I spent eight uh, as a fire chief emergency manager uh, before transitioning into the investigations uh, side of that. Um, with that said, fortunately, I came from a small uh, rural department uh, where I, I worked as a firefighter and fire chief, where 
we we fought fires and investigated fires from uh, structures to barns to vehicles to wildland fires. So we have a uh, it allowed me to have a different uh, demographic from that standpoint uh, to where I came in to uh, an investigator with Perio. Um, education wise, uh, I guess the the with regards to my job as a forensic uh, fire investigator, I have a bachelor of science degree in uh, fire administration and a fire and safety studies diploma from Justice Institute of uh, British Columbia. And then, of course, uh, with investigations, I'm a certified fire and explosions investigator and a certified vehicle fire investigator. All right, that's a lot of background. <laughs> and I apologize, <laughs> Brent. I actually said that you were with Experon. and I forget all the time that you guys actually are on the big umbrella of SCM, but then you guys all break out, and you're actually with Perio. So you're Correct. not actually with Xperia. So I do apologize for that for all yep. my listeners. Um, so... If you're trying to find them, you're not going to find them in Xperia. You're going to find them over at Perio. Um, but uh, kind of tell me, how did you end up at Perio? How did that all come together? Uh, well, I was uh, looking to transition. Uh, I worked a, uh, part-time as a fire investigator while I was still a fire chief just to see um, if I liked it. Um, and, and I do. I have a real passion for it. Uh, I think I have a knack for it as well, which, uh, you know, they kind of go hand in hand. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and uh, same with customer service. I, I feel that I communicate well with customers and, and whatnot. And it, it's been a, a, a great uh, career move for me. I, I haven't even looked back, to be honest with you. Um, I just enjoy it every day. And, you know, it kind of takes into my, my two different careers. One is a tradesperson and one is a fire chief. So, you know, of course, as a skilled tradesperson, you're you're at different job sites all the time. Um and you're moving all over the place. So, you know, with fire investigations, uh, you know, all the time, every day I'm at a different location. I could be in the office. I could be in the field. I could be in Ottawa. I could be in Cornwall. Um, and I'm investigating fires, which, uh, you know, I also have a passion for um, fire suppression and protection as well. All right. Well, that, so <clears throat> as part of Perio, what do you do for Perio? Are you... Are you overseeing? Are you more on the management side? Or are you actually out in the field still, Brandon, doing your, you know, getting your hands dirty? Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm in the field, uh, getting dirty, absolutely, um, doing investigations. And I do a little bit of uh, marketing uh, for them, not unlike what uh, we're doing today. Or, uh, you know, I, I actually did a um, two-hour presentation at Fire Service Women Ontario uh this year uh, that was hosted here in Ottawa. So I also reach out uh, and and like to help training uh, from the fire suppression standpoint as well. So I, uh, I volunteered to do them last year and uh, I think I've been invited back. So it must've been well-received. Yeah. And I mean, you spoke to the thousand islands adjusters association last year um, and that Absolutely. was really well-received as well. I was actually there. And uh, yeah. we recorded Thank that you. as well. So it was really, really well received by them and, you know, the people afterwards. But tell me, you know, when you like when I talked to Desmond and uh, we talked about, you know, the types of claims and stuff, when you get assigned to something, um, tell me why you would get assigned to a file. Is it is it because it's a big fire or it's questionable or, you know, is there multiple reasons or do you really see just one specific reason why you get 
tagged or, you know, picked to go and see a file or a fire, I should say. Well, there's, there's multiple different reasons. Uh, of course, sometimes uh, there's, there's uh, some issues surrounding the claim. Uh, so they bring in someone with my credentials to investigate. Um, another avenue could just be a, a failure of, uh, say, an appliance. So let's just say a, an appliance failed. Um, and the insurance company wants to know why they it failed and uh, what we'll do from my standpoint. So I, like you mentioned, uh, Terry, I'm, I'm in the field. So I do my fire investigation. If I thought an appliance was a potential failure that caused the fire, I would seize the appliance and uh, have it secured in our Concord office. We have a, a complete storage facility and evidence uh, logging and a lab for uh analyzing and we also can uh, can x-ray in concord as well to see if there's any internal failures with anything mm-hmm. uh, so with that said we we would uh examine that piece of evidence whether it could you know it could be an appliance it could be um a portable power tap a, a power bar for lack of a better term um that could potentially fail and, and cause a fire so when you see um things like that occur so you could be an appliance if we determine that it may be a failure of an appliance what usually happens is uh, um, an engineer for that appliance uh, manufacturer will come and do a joint exam with us uh, to determine if it was uh, a failure of that appliance uh, you know and it it could be looked at from both avenues so we wouldn't do uh, what's called a destructive examination uh, without uh, allowing the other parties to participate. That's where I was going with that, actually. I was just about to say, are you going to do destructive testing or non-destructive? Yeah. Can you go into no, that so the people know? Uh, yeah. But now, non-destructive, we can x-ray in non-destructive, too, to see if there's any failure internally. Um, but, yeah, if there's a destructive exam, we, we allow other parties the opportunity to attend prior to that, for sure. So can you d- just because there, you know, we've got all different ranges of people listening. We got lawyers, we got doctors, we got when we got new adjusters, we got you know savvy mm-hmm. adjusters that have been around for a long time, and they're going to know what destructive and non-destructive is. But can you actually just explain to people what non and destructive and destructive testing is, so they have an understanding of it? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so non-destructive would be visual uh, first and foremost. So we'd examine it uh, by eye. Um, to see if we can see any, uh, if it's an electrical um, device, any arcing, um, that we wouldn't have to take apart the appliance or the power bar or whatnot to visually see what happened. Um, the other avenue with non-destructive that I mentioned is uh, we have the ability to x-ray um, and see the internal parts of, a, of an appliance or any mechanical device to see if there's potentially a failure there as well. Um, destructive testing is just how, what the word describes. Is you, <laughs> you take it apart, you dismantle it, you photograph and document everything uh, that you're going through. And usually when you're doing a destructive, not all the time, but usually you have a few different sets of eyes, a couple different organizations uh, could be in attendance. There could be um, someone like myself uh, let's say, Terry, there was a fire in a rental property, so the owner has insurance, the tenant could have insurance. So I could be working on behalf of the owner, and there could be another fire investigator on uh, for the tenant's insurance company. Yeah, uh, They could be in attendance, and if it was 
potentially a failure of an appliance, then um, uh, engineer from the appliance company could be there as well. And but basically, we're doing that uh, destructive, having all those eyes, so there's no spoilation of the evidence, right? With everyone's there, everyone's agreeing to what the next steps are, and there's a, an agenda put together and protocols on how it's going to take place. And can you tell me what happens when somebody just decides not to attend the destructive testing? They just, they don't reply or they just don't respond or they say we're not interested. Is there something that you guys have to do in order to make sure that you're following protocol with NFPA 921 or if it, you know, if you're just following the rules of evidence at that point, you know, do you have to videotape it or is there there stuff that you have to do to make sure that you don't have a spoilation issue down the road? Yeah, well, good question, Terry. So what what we usually do from that standpoint is we'll throw out, uh, you know, a handful of different dates uh, to the parties and say, okay, here's the dates that we're putting out, who's available, who isn't available. Um, I would say the majority of the time you have full attendance or uh, representation, for lack of a better term. Um, If it's put out there where it just can't happen, you might have someone say, hey, listen, we can't attend. And that's a paper trail with that. We would just proceed accordingly from there. Okay. Now, would you videotape this if you're having that type of issue, um, as opposed to just doing uh, notes and photographs? Would that be yeah, something well, you, you might want to do? Good question. Because in 921, all documentation can be <clears throat> can be written. It can be sketches. It can be pictures. It can be videotaped. So if someone wanted to videotape the um, examination, they'd be uh, well within their rights. Now, that being said, someone could say, well, I can't make it. I'm the engineer, but we're going to send someone to document, right? And then they'd have their own set of notes as well. Have you ever had the issue with have attended by video conference? Now, I know we're doing a lot of stuff by Zoom these days and Microsoft Teams and every other platform out there. But have you ever had anybody say, listen, we can't physically get up there. We're in Texas or wherever we're at. But you know what? We'd like to attend by video. Can you please set it up so we can actually physically watch the destructive testing? Yeah, it's another good question. I haven't personally been exposed to that, but I'm sure it happens. And I I don't see why there would be an issue with it, Terry. Okay, good. All right. Well, that's something we can all think about in our new way of uh, how we work. We can always have people attend by video. Uh, and then that way they can actually physically see, they can, you know, you can zoom in, you can take a look at it if they, you know, and they can record it too, right, at the same time. Absolutely. I mean, these new platforms all have the ability to record everything, so. Um, all right, well, let's talk about the uh, the arson triangle. I mean, uh, I think that's something everybody should always get a refresher on. Okay. Um, so I think uh, you're referring to the the fire triangle or the fire tetrahedron? Uh, I was thinking uh, opportunity, motive. Oh, okay. Okay. Well, and absolutely. I think, uh, to be honest with you, that classification, uh, Desmond uh, probably has a better uh, understanding from a policing background about uh, about motive and opportunity. Yeah, exactly, Terry. So one of the things when I was speaking to Brandon about joining in on the call with me is, um, you know, uh, I can speak to you uh, about... Um, the different signs uh, that this fire was deliberately set. Um, although, you know, as, as, as being a former police officer or as an investigator, you know, we look to the fire professionals to, to that, that's the first thing that when we become involved. 
And likewise now with Brandon. So when Brandon's doing, he gets that first call uh, for any given reason. It's an unknown cause. But then as Brandon's doing his thing, and we spoke about this morning uh, briefly, myself and Brandon, he'll come across a situation where all of a sudden we see one of the signs that there's arson involved here. We need further investigation here. So we look we look to people like Brandon to come to an investigator to say, guys, here's one of the signs that I've found you need to look further, which then prompts, as you mentioned, the second phase, which, okay, so opportunity, motive, and means. And so once someone like Brandon has come to us and, and, and given us that first sign, it then prompts those further questions and, and the investigation uh, evolves from there. So I'll give you one example um, where there's multiple points of origin of a fire. So Brandon can tell you that as an investigator, fire scene investigator, when he sees there's multiple points of a fire, there's here, here, here's where the suspicion begins. And Brandon, you told me this morning about finding a crumpled up piece of paper in a micro, uh, from a microwave. Um, just quickly, briefly tell that story, and then I'm going to go on to like the motive and the means and that kind of thing. But, but just to, to give our listeners, uh, to give Terry's listeners an example of, of, of that, um, just talk about you know, finding that crumpled piece mm-hmm. of paper and what it means to a trained fire scene investigator as opposed to someone like me who's an investigator but not, a, not, not specialized uh, in, in, in fire detection. Okay, thanks, Desmond. Uh, so you're absolutely right. So one of the, <clears throat> the first red flags from a fire investigation standpoint is multiple areas of fire origin. Um, so I've been on a few uh, investigations where I've had multiple areas of origin. Uh, the conversation Desmond and I had this morning was was one uh, I had an area of origin that was uh, uh, sustained a lot of damage, a lot of loss of material, uh, heavy charring, uh, which we call alligatoring. Um, and then I was doing my investigation, and with that we talk about uh, you know when you're when you're conducting your investigation. And I was trained by the fact where you always go the same way. So we call it, uh, if you look at a square house, um, say it's a rectangle, Alpha, Bravo, Charlie, Delta. So all the time, every time I do an investigation, I go Alpha, Bravo, Charlie, Delta. And that's just for the fact if you're ever questioned why you went that way, you could say, you know, politely, I go that way every time I do an investigation. I always go Alpha, Bravo, Charlie, Delta. If I couldn't go that way. I would document to say the fact I had to go this way because of this. Um, so I was doing my investigation. I saw the, the main area of origin with a lot of damage. Uh, and then when I was walking, I saw a secondary area of origin. And it was under a little alcove. And there was a microwave there. And I went over. And there was a pattern on the wall. And there was papers that were stuffed in behind that microwave. And when you talk about... Uh, something that just didn't belong there was no reason for anything to be on fire near that microwave the um the appliance wasn't plugged in uh it was in a unusual spot and it had combustible materials in behind it um so now that when we're when we're talking about that we're talking about multiple areas of origin but we're also talking about uh trailers so when you you talk about trailers as a red flag it could be ignitable liquids. It could be uh, bed sheets. A trailer is something that allows uh, a fire to travel from one place to another. So that material would be, as I said, a combustible liquid, combustible solid, 
could be sticks, it could be cardboards. Um, and when you're doing that fire investigation, especially a, a liquid accelerant trailer, there's a lot of debris usually in a, in a fire. And say it's a, a carpeted floor or a hardwood floor, we actually have to clean that floor right back. And if you ever see a fire investigator, we, we carry shovels, we carry brooms. So we would shovel everything out of there, all the debris out, and we'd actually sweep the area of origin to see if there's any signs of a trailer leading the fire from one area to another. Um, another red flag when we talk about fire patterns uh, is what's called a halo pattern. So a halo pattern is caused, again, let's, let's uh, suggest we had a hardwood floor. So if you took ignitable liquid, poured it on the floor, so an ignitable liquid like gasoline is actually the vapor that's uh, combusting. It's not the liquid itself. So what happens is that vapor burns and it leaves a halo type effect around the edges of that liquid. The liquid in the middle actually protects the floor because it's absorbing the heat. So when that is removed or consumed, you'll have that halo effect, which is an irregular pattern uh, sitting on the floor that suggests that you could have a ignitable liquid there. Yeah, so so, so Terry, just to, to continue from there, um, so Brandon will, as, as the fire scene investigator, come across these different signs. And there's many others. Um, you know, I just gave you one example there. Um, but, uh, you know, a few others could simply be along the lines of uh, there's fuel containers that are found out of place uh, at the scene that, that, that Brandon might come across. Um, there is um, and there's indicators of artificial draft or combustion aids. Um, there's evidence of highly normal temperatures. So what happens is we, we rely on people like Brandon you know, there's some red flags, and then it'll, you know, go back to the insurance company, the adjuster, who, who sees Brandon's report and says, okay, well, there's, 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 there's some anomalies here. Now we need to investigate to see if there's fraud. And that's where the second piece of it comes in, and, and, and someone like uh, Xperia uh, and myself and our SIU investigators get involved. And so what do we look for? So what, you know, what are some of the signs? Okay, so it's, it's one thing to say, well, we, we, find, we found signs of uh, a combustible material uh, that, or you know, a, a container that normally carries um, petroleum. So now, as an investigator, you know, we we start the process, and we'll start looking into things and asking those questions, um, and and seeing if there's signs. Are there signs that maybe uh, that the person's involved or the owner of the property? Uh, are there domestic disputes, Terry? Are, are they going through a divorce at the moment? Um, are they experiencing financial difficulties? And that's something we do as investigators. We are able to go go back and uh, start looking financially. Um, you know, are these were these people in debt going leading up to the fire? And we start looking at, at possible motives because you mentioned that you know the triangles and the motive. You know, it's one thing to start the fire. Is there a motive behind it? And as we start piecing this together, and we see, well, hey, you know what? He has a bitter divorce going on right now. And again. Brandon and I had a conversation this morning where a couple um, were in a domestic squabble where the one partner set the clothing alight um, in the bedroom of the other partner. And that led to the death of the person, unfortunately, who, who lit the fire. Um, but yeah, it started off as a domestic squabble where uh, the, you know, one, one party 
actually deliberately set fire to the clothing of the other. So that's one of the things we look at. And how do we look at that? How do you investigate that? Well, we're able to look at social media because a lot of people, when they're going through a divorce, it, it, it might become bitter. They'll post, they'll go on Twitter and say, you know, my partner has been unfair. Uh, you know, uh, uh, my, uh, I, hate, I hate their lawyer or whatever the case may be. So there's always, there's always evidence of something like that. And so that, that will now be added to the fact that Brandon um, has found physical signs um, of uh, physical red flags of this fire being started deliberately. And now I've got, you know, now, now I'm finding motive, um, which then prompts you to look further into those things. So, um, you know, was the property listed for sale, um, you know, previous to the fire? Was the vehicle that was set alight on Kijiji a month ago? Um, you know, everything on the internet now is forever, Terry. Um, you're able to go, uh, we, we, we use different tools at Xperia to go back, uh, and it's called, the, the, you know, the Wayback Machine is just one example where we're able to go look at past sites. Uh, there's actually companies out there that take snapshots of the internet on a daily basis, um, and we're able to go, go backwards and then look, okay, well, on Kijiji, um, can we do a search to see if this particular vehicle was up for sale or if this particular home was up for sale? Um, you know, was with the Remax, and so that would just be another sign that hey, this property was for sale. They couldn't sell it, and now all of a sudden, um, Brandon's firing contaminants uh, at the scene, um, and 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 now, lo and behold, the place is burned down. And so that's kind of how you know we look at these investigations and how one thing leads leads to the next, and how you have to do a thorough um, e e examination. Now. I, I have a quick question off of what Brandon had said there, and it and it kind of ties into yours as well, Desmond. But my question is, now that we're in the age of uh, legal drugs, being able to grow your own plants and stuff in your house, um, people are like experimenting with stuff like shatter and uh, and other drugs uh, like spice and stuff like that. So you know they're having you know they're they're taking the weed that they're growing and they're augmenting it and they're changing it so they're using liquid you know they're using gasoline or butane or right. or chemicals in their house and these are household compounds that they're using uh or stuff that you can just get in your garage or get at a local convenience store it's not like they're buying I'm not talking about methamphetamine or anything like that but these are local things and legal things but then they're mixing them to create very volatile things. Are you guys seeing that on the increase of your fires, Brandon? Like that kind of stuff as well? Uh, absolutely, Terry. And and one of the big hazards with uh, with growing things like marijuana is, is the use of temporary wiring and, and individuals doing their own electrical work in their home. Uh, whether it's illegal or, or not illegal, growing of this uh, product it uh, it still adds to a to a fire hazard uh, when we think of uh, loading of uh, receptacles. So I've I've had a handful of uh, fires in in both my my career now and my previous career um, that could either be caused by electrical uh, failures or, or uh, installation from the homeowner. I've also had fires where uh, the individuals uh, extracting oil uh, from the uh, plant yeah. and the oil gets on the burners of the stove. And, and another example of, of, you know, if you're investigating a fire um, from both a fire investigator or, or a police officer is 
is injuries too. Because a lot of those injuries, when you're dealing with uh, elements on a stove, will burns to the hands or the face. Um, so how did you get these burns? Uh, type thing, right? Um, I, I when we talk about two um, ignitions of fire, there, there's something that is like is it likes to be called exotic uh, ignition sources. Um, there's one that when I did my training at the fire college uh, for fire scene assessment, they were they were showing us uh, instances where you can have a delayed combustion with powdered chlorine and brake fluid. So that uh, allows a time delay. So you, when you're baking, you 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 make a bowl out of flour and you put the egg in it. Yeah. It's just with the powdered chlorine. You make a bowl, you put the brake fluid in, and there's actually a time delay. So now these are common products that could be found in a garage, for instance. Um, likely, maybe in close geographic location to each other, that could um, be used to have a delayed uh, ignition of a fire. Um, another one that's used uh, quite a bit, especially in vehicle fires, is uh, regular potato chips. Yeah. Uh, so a regular potato chip has enough oils and fats on the chip itself to sustain combustion. So if you light that chip on fire, uh, you can actually just throw it in there. And the only evidence that you're maybe going to find is if they used a corrugated type chip because the remains of the chip are usually still there, but if it's a flat chip, it's very hard to, to visually spot. Um, the corrugated ones obviously have a have uh, some different texture to them, so you can you can spot them a little more readily. But these are just types of things that are, are commonly found in people's homes or in their garages or in their sheds that, that can be used to, uh, to light a fire uh, or sustain a fire. Well, I can attest that. Yeah, and let's yeah. talk about the non, um, like the fires that you do get, like with linseed oil, where people just don't know what they're doing, yeah. right? We've got That's those, and peat moss. Peat moss is pretty, can be pretty devastating for fires. Yeah, absolutely, and and when you talk about uh, uh, like linseed oil, that's why they say when you when you wash when you use linseed oil, if you're if you're using rags, you're supposed to wash the rags and then hang them out to dry. Because what happens is there's a chemical reaction that takes place. So if those rags are are in a, a crumpled, um, like messy pile. If there's any type of off-gassing or chemical reaction that takes place, it allows that material to help build heat because it's actually um, uh, insulating it. So heat is buoyant. It likes to rise. So if you put something over it uh, that allows that heat to build, you could absolutely have spontaneous uh, combustion. Uh, the other one with peat moss, Terry, is, is something that we're seeing more and more these days, is, uh, especially on decks, is you'll have planting material yeah. and you'll have those uh, cigarettes into that planting material. Uh, and it, it is absolutely a major hazard. It is something that I think the, the last few years we're starting to see more and more of uh, all the time. And, and when you talk about that, uh, careless disposal of smoking materials uh, in NFPA is the number two cause of uh, household fires. Yeah. Um, sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, yeah, it's crazy how careless people really are. Yeah, absolutely. And the, and the same with uh, smoking materials, because when you have that, even a cigarette, like it has a uh, ignition time that can be between 20 minutes and five hours. 
So when you see uh, cigarettes that might fall down into a couch cushion, um, a lot of the fires even you're seeing on on the highway. Uh, in my past, I serviced the, uh, the 401, and you'd have a lot of uh, fires in the spring from people flicking cigarettes out of the car when they're doing 100 or 110. And what happens is that cigarette gets into the grass, and if the grass is uh, you know matted down because the snow had melted, all that combustible vegetation is dry. So it allows that matted grass to absorb the heat and blanket, insulate that heat, allows the heat to build. And that's when you're seeing a lot of these grass fires along uh, along the highways are, are from disposed of uh, smoking materials. And those are hours in the making, right? They just don't catch on fire immediately right after the guy throws it out the window for the most yeah. part. He's long gone. That's why a lot of people, uh, a lot of fatalities, unfortunately, from, from smoking on a couch because the people fall asleep and the cigarette could drop and it might be a couple hours before the couch is actually sustained flaming combustion. And they're long asleep at that point, right? They're basically correct. In correct. Their, in their little yeah. fiery, sleepy coffin. Yeah. Um, but one of the other things we didn't touch on there, Terry, is uh, so we talked about um, you know some of the red flags of how a fire has been deliberately set. Yeah. Um, one of the things that we tend to forget is well, what happens if there's no obvious sign of a fire being set. So someone like Brandon goes out there, he does his investigation, comes back and he says, guys, the wiring looks fine. There's, there, there, there's no crinkle cut chip uh, residue on, the, on, on, on site. There's no containers. Um, so yeah, I, I can't find anything. You know, that's a red flag. That's a huge red flag if there's no obvious sign of how that fire is being set. So we, again, we rely on people like Brandon to go and do that physical inspection that physical investigation that comes to us um, so as an adjuster, if you, if you get that where, because, um, you know, the normal person will think, okay, well, if we find a, a can, you know, a, a, one of those red uh, plastic cans that you carry uh, gas in, uh, that's not there. Okay, well, then I suppose the fire was natural. Well, you know what, if there's no obvious sign, then so that's a red Are you saying the lack of evidence is that's, evidence? That's, that's what you're saying? That's, yeah. That's exactly. The lack of physical evidence, right? It's not there. So that's a red that's a red flag because usually someone like Brandon can come and tell you, and I'll let him speak to that, Brandon. Mm-hmm. Um, when you when you going to when you going to investigate uh, a fire scene, what, what's the likelihood? How how often do you come across a situation where you go back and say, "Hey, I've done my investigation and I don't have a clue how this started." Mm-hmm. Well, and that's a good point, Desmond and and Terry. When we look at that from a, a origin and cause scenario is we look at and we get down, especially if the structure is standing. Sometimes, unfortunately, we end up uh, looking at uh, a large pile of debris, which certainly doesn't mean we're, we're not going to be able to figure out what happened, but it's certainly more difficult. Um, but we look at an area and we say, okay, the fire started there. What is my ignition source? So if I have no wall receptacles, uh, if I don't see smoking material, I just look at something and say, why was there a fire there and how did that start? Um, so from that avenue, what we do from, as fire investigators is we always carry mason jars and uh, uh, cylinders like that. So we, we would take samples uh, from the area of origin uh, and we'd seal it, we'd date it. And with, with doing that, we got to be careful with cross-contamination too. So what you would do is you'd have medical gloves on, you'd fill one jar, uh, you would take 
seal the jar, date it, time it, and label it, and then you'd put the gloves beside the jar and take a picture. Now, if we are going to do a second area of origin, we do the exact same thing because now if this becomes a legal uh, avenue, they can't say that we, well, that sample and that sample, you use the same glove. So how do we know that that sample, you didn't have traces of an accelerant on your gloves when you did that? Or for lack of a better term, I wear uh, a pair of gloves doing an investigation. You're digging through debris. So when you're taking this sample, you're putting a brand new, fresh set of latex gloves on so there's no chance of cross-contamination you document it and then what happens is we uh, we don't have the avenue uh, at our office but we have third-party access so we would uh, ask the adjuster if they'd like us to have these samples tested and we'd send them to a third party uh, and get a, uh, a sample test done on it and then they'd send us the results so you're just going to send it off for analysis to like active labs or wherever you correct. guys use, right? Um, yeah, correct. So tell me or tell the audience about um, things that you're seeing more and more of and that people or adjusters should be aware of. Like, you know, we, we always say water's the new fire, but what are you seeing in fire claims um, that that you're seeing more of that we should be looking at more? And I, I know we talk about careless smoking, but that's not... That's unintentional. Is there more intentional stuff that you're seeing more and more because people are searching it up on the internet? Or is it, what, what are you seeing out there, Brendan, that you think we should be thinking about more? Um, another great question, Terry. Actually, there was an article in, uh, in Canadian Underwriter uh, on July 14th that, that talked about, um, you know, the possibility that we might see start seeing more things like uh, vehicle fraud where someone lights a vehicle on fire because they're having trouble uh, making the payments um, on that vehicle or they're just cash trapped because we have unfortunately we have a lot of people that are out of work right now yep um now something like that i i could see i support their 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 ideology on that is that is certainly a possibility um it's been common knowledge in the news that there's a lot going on in, in the GTA with tow trucks even where um, tow trucks are, are catching fire and it, it has been documented that it could be the competition that was actually maybe doing this to their uh, opposition's uh, tow truck to put them out of business or to retain some of their business. I read that so article. Think, <laughs> yeah, this is something that, that uh, throws a lot of red flags up. Um, and with vehicle fires, if, if you look at it, and it's very similar in that aspect to structure fire. So if you look at a vehicle fire, it's broken down into compartments. So you could have an engine compartment, passenger compartment, and a cargo compartment. Um, when we're looking at that, if we see the engine compartment and the cargo compartment were on fire, that's a huge red flag. Because why is there a fire in, in two different compartments? Um, from an investigation standpoint, if, if you look at that, a, a windshield can tell you a lot uh, if there's a total damage uh, and destruction to that vehicle. Because if, if you have a failure of the windshield at the top, that usually indicates a compartment uh, passenger compartment fire. If you have a failure of the windshield at the bottom, that usually indicates a uh, engine compartment fire. And another red flag with that, when you're looking at a vehicle, especially one that's a total loss, uh, you start looking to see if all the components are actually there. 
Because if there's all the components are not there, there's some things that are missing. Why are they missing? So did that car actually, was it driven there or did, was it towed there and then uh, set ablaze? In what regard, Brandon? So, so when you get sorry. that, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off, but I didn't want to forget the question. So maybe you can touch <laughs> on it when you're done. But um, in what regard, when you say there's components missing, what are you, what are you talking about so people are maybe paying uh, attention? I'm looking in the engine compartment and I notice the alternator's not there. Well, why is the alternator not there? Did the, the, the person that owned this have two cars that were the same and decided to keep the alternator as a spare for the other one? Or, you know, you, you don't usually see, or you could say, uh, you know what, there was a car fire and these cars or trucks usually have high-end rims on them. And we just found a, a $80,000, $90,000 pickup truck with $100 rims on it. That's very unusual, right? So that means that the rims, unless it's wintertime and they're running snows, likely they took the rims off and put these cheaper tires on, and then uh, the incident happened, and maybe they're looking for insurance. Yeah, same with the sound system. A very expensive sound system, Terry, might be missing um, from, from the vehicle. And w- uh, will you be able yep. to tell if that's post-loss or pre-loss? Uh, that would be very difficult, Terry. Uh, we, we would document uh, basically that that was not there. If we had a – there will always be remains of something, so if we had a, a, a stereo like Desmond uh, alluded to, a high-end vehicle and there was no stereo in it, we're going to go, okay, well, hang on a second. Where is the stereo? See, now that's where that comes down to the investigation piece, Terry. So uh, as an investigator, uh, Brandon will tell me, you know, the, the alternator is missing or the stereo is missing. That's when we start as an investigator, when we're interviewing and we have that uh, person in front of us or the claimant in front of us, we start asking those questions. Um, we ask for photographs. Do you, you know, part of our investigation, we'll ask, can, and, and this actually happened to me on investigation, we asked for photographs of the vehicle. And um, at the time when I asked the question, the claimant was very willing to help me and he didn't think. And he said, yeah, no, I've got a few photos right here on my phone I took. And, he, and, he, and I said, can you, send those to my, can you send those to my email right now? And he sent them to me by email, not thinking. And when we went back and examined those photographs of what he sent me, sure enough, um, they were, and I actually, I think I spoke about this investigation to you um, the last time we spoke about the theft behind the Nepean Sportsplex. Well, yeah. guess what? There was, a, there, there was, a, there was a, in, in the photographs he'd sent, he was giving a thumbs up sign from behind the steering wheel, and there was the system um, that was within the vehicle. And then when they recovered the vehicle in a chop shop in Montreal, there was no stereo in there. But anyway, you know, that, that's when it comes to us where we can look further at those different things. And, um, and to, t- to touch on, you know, you, you asked Brandon, what, you know, in, in these times now, what, you know, what are some of the red flags? What should adjusters be looking for? And Brandon and I had, a, again, we had a conversation this morning and um, we've had a couple of fires here in Ottawa over the last uh, couple of months where restaurants um, have burnt down. Now, I'm not going to mention them because I, I don't want to, you know, be accused of, 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 of maybe casting suspicion on them. But we've had a couple of restaurants burned down, right? Yeah. And then uh, I saw an interview uh, where this restauranteur had um, embarked on opening a restaurant pre-COVID. So as you know, you can imagine, you know, if, you, if you're going to start a restaurant, that's a long process. There's there's, there's the planning of it. There's the getting, you know, not only the building out of the particular restaurant, but you know, getting your licenses up to date, getting the city, uh, uh, you know, to approve the planning and approve your your business license. And then this guy was interviewed on television, and he was devastated. They were set to open um, in March, 
They're brand new restaurants. And guess what? They haven't opened one single day, but they've spent millions of dollars getting to the point of opening their restaurant, which hasn't been open one day, Terry. So all of a sudden, you've got, you've got partners who invested millions of dollars opening a restaurant. COVID has come around, shut down the restaurants, and they haven't been open one day. Now, other restaurants that have struggled, you know, they've been around for a while. They've got loyal clientele. So what they've done is they've said, okay, we'll do takeouts. You know, we'll do curbside pickup. We'll do delivery. And they've managed to kind of hold on to some of their business and, and keep it going, right, through this COVID um, until the different stages start opening. But someone who's just about to open, he's got no loyalty. He's got no customers. No one knows the brand. Um, there's not much he can do. So they did try and say, okay, well, we're going to do some take-up. But guess what? No one's coming. No one's, no one's ordering take-up because no one knows the brand. So all of a sudden, you know, you've got someone who's uh, invested millions and there's no way to recover that now. Uh, you know, I haven't looked in depth at the insurance policies as regards to that, but um, you can imagine um, all of a sudden, you know, my restaurant burns down and you can be rest assured that's probably now all covered under your insurance policy. So two restaurants have burned down. And if you look, there was a spate. I was just watching the news in the weekend. There's been a spate of fires, not just in restaurants, but overall, the fires are up. And that could also be attributed to the heat uh, wave that, that's going on. But certainly a red flag. If you're looking at a business that was struggling or that is because of COVID, because COVID has affected businesses in different ways, Terry. Some have really taken off and done well, where others have really suffered and closed their doors. So, you know, look at that as an adjuster. You know, look at the business. Is it one of those that, that, that wasn't really impacted that much, severely impacted or not impacted at all? And if it's severely impacted by COVID, um, take a look uh, and, and have someone like Brandon, you know, start that process of looking at the, the causes um, and then coming to to someone like us. Yeah. So, the, and and like you said, some businesses have done much better with COVID, like the delivery services and those kind of things, and and uh, yeah. these platforms like Zoom and stuff. But yeah, I, I see what you're saying. I mean, these are things that we all have to be very cautious of, right? That we're not just assuming everybody's making questionable claims, and that's why we have to have experts like yourself and Brandon involved. Um, Brandon, is there anything that you think that, you know, um, maybe the ABCs or one, two, threes of, you know, the just stuff that you could impart your wisdom on adjusters that they should be looking at more to help them identify these questionable issues that, you know, that would help them get a file, you know, off their desk and into your hands that much quicker, something that, you know, yeah, well, I'll, uh, I, I'm going to touch just briefly on what Desmond said uh, about the, the times we're in now, where, uh, if you don't mind, Terry, because what's going on is we're seeing a, a, a quite a spike in fires. Um, now, keep in mind, with NSPA, uh, they track the leading causes of fire, mm-hmm. and the number one and number two uh, leading causes are careless cooking and careless disposal of smoking material. Uh, so with these times, they're unusual. They're, people are off work. They're at home more. So that means they're they're cooking more. They're not maybe as financially well off as they were because they're off work. Uh, so they're not eating out as much. So cooking fires are, are absolutely going to be up. And then at the same time, you have people, instead of being out uh, during the day, they're at home. So the, these fires have gone... Uh, gone up quite a bit. Uh, and then, of course, we have the other, the other swing where we with these troubled times, you're having people that are, are, are doing desperate things uh, uh, periodically. 
Um, with fire, uh, when you go in, I always call it the, you know, for lack of a better term, I call it the gut feeling. Sometimes when things just don't feel right and don't look right, they're just not right. And when things, uh, you know, and I think Desmond would attest to this with a policing background, but when things are, are out of place and don't, uh, don't belong somewhere, uh, like I said, with the, uh, the paper stuff behind the microwave that wasn't plugged into the wall that was on fire, that, that doesn't belong there. That's out of place. First of all, why is the microwave on the floor? when usually it's on a counter and why is there combustible materials inserted behind this microwave? Uh, Sorry, I was going to say to you, was there any explanation ever given for something like that? Did they try and talk their way out of that? Uh, well, that was, uh, Terry, that was in my past life. Okay. Uh, so we did then uh, as a fire chief is we'd investigate it. And if you see multiple areas of origin, you call the fire marshal's office. Sure. And the fire marshal's office would investigate along with uh, the local police service. Now, see, with, with this uh, uh, occupation I have now is is we're actually in, if the OFM is brought in, we're actually in after them. Where when I was a fire chief, we were in before them. Uh, so you're seeing a lot of different uh, avenues from that from that standpoint. Yeah, and to your point, to your question, um, Terry, again, if I can, you know, you, you asked, well, what, what, can, what, what should an adjuster be looking for? You know, what are the ABCs, the one, two, threes yep. to, to, I should take a deeper look at this. No, a couple of things, and we've, we've touched on some of them, like was the property for sale, you know, was, as COVID affected it and, and, and they're not doing any business. But there's some obvious things like, um, you know, you're looking at the policy, the adjuster's looking at this policy, but all of a sudden you see that the property and the content were heavily overshored. Right, so there's just way too much insurance for what for, for the property that's been lost. Um, you know, uh, there, there's no signs of forced entry uh, or other, you know, than those that can be caused by the fire department access. So, you know, when when they, when, when the adjuster is looking at this claim and, he, and he's looking at at, at 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 the explanation given by the claimant, you know, take a look at that. And you know, those things are there. For instance, the over insurance. There's no signs of obvious entry uh, except for the fire department breaking down the door and getting in well, how did that fire start then if no one's in there kind of thing so there are things they can look at um, uh, you know there, there's signs of uh, tampering with electrical and gas systems so when brandon gives that in his report to to an adjuster and, and you see those signs then certainly um the adjuster should be looking at that and say okay there, 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 there's something there's something not right here and let's look at this a bit further so and, and, and again, we touched on just the typical things. You know, does the uh, claimant know more uh, about the process than you, the adjuster, when it comes to a claim? Remember, we spoke, <laughs> spoke yeah. about them knowing terminology better than you. So, so again, if those things are present, uh, and those can be present for any type of fraud, but if those things are present, then, yeah, you know what? We need to look at that. We need to look at uh, Brandon's report. Well, let me, let me get Brandon in here to give me an – because, yeah, there's something not looking right yet. It's over-insured. It's – He's talking, you know, way too educated on this. So let me get Brandon in there. And then Brandon comes back and gives you a few additional red flags. Then it comes back to me. Uh, when I say me, I mean to the investigation um, world where we sit down and start gathering that evidence that, uh, that, that Brandon wouldn't. Brandon's job is to gather that evidence at the fire scene itself. He comes and says, hey, guys, look, there's evidence of this. And, I'm out of here. And Brandon, because you're a technical guy, would you look at the fire department? So when you go to the scene and you look at the door and it's kicked in and you look at points of entry that, you know, that just seem weird, like the, the 
there's a door that's kicked in. Will you compare that to what the fire department's report says, you know, how they um, made entry into the home to see if, you know, that correlates with that and why, you know, this window, like why nothing else is damaged? Like how did somebody get in and set this incendiary fire then? Is that something that you would do or is that flip back to the Xperia side of things? Uh, another good question, Terry. No, that's exactly what we do as well as we, uh, when we document, like, uh, I think I might be on the extreme side of this, but I usually take on a standard structure fire. When I say standard, I mean like a 12, 1400 square foot house. Uh, I usually take between three and 350 images on my camera. Yeah. Uh, now those images, uh, we always start investigations, uh, under NSPA 921, we're trained to go from the least damaged portion of the structure to the most damaged. So least damaged, you start on the outside, you do your 360. Like I said, you in the, in the beginning of the podcast, I always go left. Uh, so if I'm ever questioned, why did you go left? Because I, I go every time. Um, when we go through, I'd look at doors. I look at door frames. Uh, we're trained in a, in a way where I can tell you by looking at the hinges of a door, even if the door is gone, whether that door was open or closed. Uh, if we see something that's breached, like a uh, like a uh, door uh, latch, uh, I've had them in the past where I found uh, window latches that are broken. Um, and we'll collect those as well. So we don't just collect... Um, uh, things for accelerants. I collect that as evidence and we would store that. So I'd say, okay, this is what I have. Um, if I have something like that, I would absolutely even reach out to the fire department and say, okay, I'm the investigator on this file. Um, did you guys kick the door in? And they might say, yeah, we did kick it in. Oh, okay. Well, great. Now that explains why that door is damaged, right? If they say, no, we didn't kick it in, then, then we have red flags. Um, where we start looking at uh, video surveillance uh, in investigations as well, as well, where I've seized uh, video surveillance uh, systems and, and found some uh, pretty incriminating evidence on those systems. Um, now, again, we've had damaged video surveillance where we couldn't get the footage off, but we have third-party um, uh, electronics yeah. companies that will actually uh, be able to get that off for us. Uh, you know, and again, we just politely say to the adjuster, hey, we, we think this is of interest. You want us to proceed. And uh, we, we've gotten some interesting things off, off uh, video recordings uh, that, that are of interest in the investigation, absolutely. Excellent. Okay. So there, there's a lot more than just than showing up and taking a few photos and taking a couple of samples is what people really need to be aware of, right? No, absolutely. And and one of the first things that we always do, and, and I, I try to do this as, as much as I can, is knocking on doors because neighbors see a lot of things. Um, you get a lot of uh, comments that are that are interesting, for lack of a better term. Yep. And you might have the neighbors might have a video camera that that points at their driveway and it, and it might catch the front step of that house or um, the driveway of that structure. Uh, so you get a lot from that. And, and from, from our background on that with, with doing the interviews, I don't think that's a lot, uh, and Desmond can correct me if I'm wrong, I don't think that's a lot different from uh, the uh, policing avenue is, is we're going out and we're, we're dotting our I's and crossing our T's. And, and sometimes you have flags that, 
that uh, that come up where you just say, like I said to you earlier, that that just doesn't sound right or that that sounds out of place. Um, again, when you're looking at timelines, um, when fires occur as well, is you know, especially if you're looking at a a, a volunteer uh, fire service in a in a certain area, is that if a, if a fire occurs at night, those those firefighters worked all day. Um, some are going to be on night shift, so they're not going to be home. Others are going to be sleeping. So the, they're, you're going to have a delayed response from the local fire department as well. Okay. So you look at uh, time and opportunity too. So if you could delay that fire department by four or five minutes because you set a fire at three in the morning instead of three in the afternoon, that would be advantageous as well, right? Oh, um, okay. Or for a damage, because fire consumes fuel, you know, structures of fuel. Everything in the house is, is a fuel from some standpoint, right? So if you have delayed uh, timelines like that, it's, it's also uh, to delay that response, right? All right. Well, that's good to know. I mean, people, again, jesters, uh, your season's adjusters are going to know these things. It's this is this podcast today. I think it's it's a great refresher for everybody, but it's really good for the newbies and the the newer adjusters and the and maybe even some of the lawyers and doctors that are not doctors, but some of the lawyers that we deal with. That you know they send out somebody, but they don't really know why they're sending them out or what evidence they could really get. And again, we talk about evidence and then lack thereof of, of evidence makes evidence as well, right? So. There's, there's so many things to be considered when you're talking about a fire. I think people forget how much information fires leave when they're done. That, that's correct. And, and you know, the, the great thing about uh, you know, the Perio Expera, um, you know, sisterhood, if I can call it that, is, you know, we're talking about fire here. But, you know, we, we, we had an investigation here in Ottawa where it came to us first where there were some questions and there were all the red flags that we've talked about. It came up, Terry. And this related to a sump pump failure, uh, which then flooded the basement and then uh, which had just re- newly been renovated. Um, and so and this was a lesson for me because I didn't know myself, but because I'm housed in the same, you know, in, in the same vicinity. As Pario, I had a conversation. I ran into uh, one of my Pario colleagues, and I, and I was talking about the sump pump uh, failure. And um, I found out very promptly that uh, Pario are actually one of the few companies that are certified to do sump pump um, failure testing. And so I went back to the adjuster and I said, "Well, you know what? You know, Pario is able to they they certify to 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 examine the sump pump to let us know if if it actually didn't." indeed failed and so we did it and uh, we sent it off uh, you know perio came in and they have a certain way of collecting that evidence to 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 keep the chain of evidence intact and they sent it uh, for testing in toronto um and then all of a sudden you know we get those results terry which then leads me to my questioning of that homeowner um uh, to once we knew the outcome of that it then directs me of how am i going to question that homeowner so the only reason i tell you that story is because you know, with someone like Perio and Xperia, uh, you know, belonging to the same company, we, we, we have the, these different avenues where we, uh, we complement each other and uh, we can offer that to, you know, the insurance world and the adjusters. So it's something where, you know, in-house we were able to do all of that. So I just wanted to throw that in there as well where uh, I've used the Perio to directly come. So it's not just the fire scene, you know, it's, it was the water damage and the sump pump failure. So um, that was interesting for me to learn myself. Yeah, that is. That's really good. Now, um, guys, we're we're getting close to the end. What's a couple of things that we can take as takeaways here for today? 
Um, we'll start with you, Brandon. What's a few things that you, you think adjusters need to know? Give me your top five takeaways from today, what adjusters should be doing or, or what you think that's important. Okay. Well, I, I think, first of all, when you, when you talk to adjusters, um, there's always a subrogation avenue uh, possibility out there. So when you're talking about fire investigators and we talk about um, joint exams and destructive uh, uh, exams, uh, Terry, at our Concord office, Mm -hmm. you know what? You could have an appliance that failed. And if that appliance failed and we can prove that it failed, there's a subrogation avenue uh, if there was a fire at someone's house against that appliance manufacturer. So that's obviously uh, something an insurance adjuster is going to be uh, looking at and and, and uh, wanting us to investigate and, and prove this fact. Um, the other thing, and Desmond touched on on this, is finances of people when we talk about uh, uh, fires, especially vehicle fires. Now, I, I took a second just to do a little research, and I got to apologize because the stats are a little outdated on this. But I went on uh, in one of my textbooks, and it said uh, the stats in the United States of America. And I apologize, it's American. That's in okay. 20- Estimated there was 14,000 intentionally set vehicle fires resulting in $89 million in property loss. Wow. Now, this is 10 or sorry, 12 years ago. And the, um, the times we're in now, if that was the number in 2010, what are they looking at now? Because as Desmond touched on, people are in desperate times, unfortunately, and, and, and it sometimes leads for people to do desperate things so when you're looking at any fire from from my opinion whether it be a vehicle or a structure if we're not in or you haven't hired an origin and cause investigator and you see what uh, you think that's there's two area of, of origin uh three if there's an area of origin on the on the main floor and one in the basement that's certainly not something that uh, that is normal um, that's the time to bring in, in people, uh, that have the expertise to say, okay, well, why are these there? And, you know, hopefully we can, we can say, well, this happened and it caused this to happen. Uh, this area, maybe we don't have an ignition point, uh, or anything that could have caused a fire. We're going to take samples. We can get those tested for you. Um, or, Hey, let's look at uh, video surveillance. So there's always avenues and I like to call it thinking outside the box. So you're either, there's always a way to to gather um, information, and it doesn't always have to be uh, in a tunnel vision uh, way of thinking. Going down the highway, there's side roads you can go down to 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 come up uh, with hopefully a conclusion to what happened. Um, but like I said, yeah, I, I think the biggest thing we're seeing now is uh, we're seeing accidental fires are up. And we're, we're seeing those because people are off work, people are at home. Like I indicated to you in the podcast, uh, number one is careless uh, cooking. And number two is careless disposal of smoking material. So people are home more, you're going to see more fires as well. Yeah. And un- unfortunate times. So uh, hopefully that answers your question. Yeah, it does. Uh, That's great. I mean, uh, and, and I think the subrogation issue, we didn't touch on that a lot. So, um and we can touch on it pretty briefly. Subrogation is okay. important, um, and I think it's important. I think it's a piece that adjusters miss a lot. They don't think about the subrogation aspect till it's at the end of the claim when they should Correct. be thinking it up at the beginning because that's evidence that can literally go go away. And uh, so that really needs to be to looked at, and th- that evidence needs to be secured. So 
Mm-hmm. Um, well, I can make uh, uh, um, my opinion on fires. Is that as a fire investigator, I'm sure Desmond, uh, as a as a investigator uh, with Xpera as well. When we go in to investigate, we love to be the first one in. We it's not attractive for us to show up and, and see a bunch of different people that have already been through the fire scene. Yeah. Uh, we want to be the first in because if there is that opportunity, we don't want the spoilation to happen because if, if it if there is a subrogation avenue, let's say it goes to court, they're going to say, well, who was around this stuff? How do we know this didn't happen, that didn't happen? If it's secured and then... Um, if, if the adjuster thinks there might be an issue, bring in a, a company like Xpera to secure the scene mm-hmm. until the fire investigators get there. And then we go in and then we'll uh, advise the adjuster when we're complete with our investigation. Then if there's anything of interest, there's no spoilation that's taken place and we can seize it uh, in, in, a, in a more attractive manner. That's great. That's Those are very important things. So adjusters, if you're listening, those were... You know, we're just a little over the hour mark here, but those were key. Very key. <laughs> uh, Desmond, what about you? What's some takeaways from today for you, for our listeners? What do you got well, for me? Top, very, very quickly, three top things to take away. I'll make it brief, Terry. Um, so as the adjuster, you know, look at the fire scene indicators that Brandon is going to give you. Um, were there multiple points uh, of origin to a fire? Uh, were there signs of an explosion? Uh, no signs of forced entry. Was the sprinkler system turned off? Um, you know, so, you know, what, was the property heavily overinsured? So that's the first thing. Look at the actual fire scene indicator that Brandon's going to tell you. Yep. Um, number one. Then number two, uh, look at the personal situation of your claimant. Um, you know, uh, you know, are they going through a separation? Are they going through a divorce? Are they experiencing financial difficulties? You know, it could be COVID, could be anything. Uh, we keep picking on COVID, but that's uh, one of the signs, uh, you know, when people are unemployed and they haven't got money, it's, it, that's just one of those things. So, you know, look at the personal uh, motivations of your claimant, um, you know, uh, and then second, the, the last thing I want to leave you with is uh, look at the insured indicators themselves. Um, and we've spoken about this, but, um, you know, has the insured made any suspicious comments uh, or any suspicious behavior? Or do, they, do they appear inconsistent uh, with the circumstances? My house was just burnt down. Oh, so what? I can get a new one. That's, you know, that's not typical. Yeah. Um, you know, my, my, my house is burned down. Oh, my God, my life, you know, is ending because my, my, my photographs from my childhood are all gone forever. Um, the insured threatens to sue right away or use a lawyer immediately after the loss. They're putting pressure on the adjuster. Well, I'm going to go see my lawyer if you don't pay this very quickly. Um, you know, uh, and, and we touched on those as general um, red flags when we spoke about, you know, all the other types of claims. But, um, you know, the claimant appears calm or shows little concern. So look, so there's many more of those which we've, we, which we've touched on. But, but those are the three things, you know, look, look at what Brandon's going to tell you, the fire scene indicators. Then look at the personal situation or the motive indicators. Is there motive for this? And then last, look at the insured indicators. Um, which I've just touched on as well. So those are the three things, you know, I would, uh, I would, um, you know, your listeners to to look for when it's it's coming to these uh, types of claims when it comes to arson. Great. Well, guys, how are they going to get in touch with you? How are they going to find you, Desmond? I'll I'll get you to say yours because you were just talking, and then Brandon, I'll get you to give your your contact info as well. So Desmond, I know I've talked to you before, but you know, once again, just let everybody know how do they get in touch with you? Where do they reach you? 
Perfect. So again, the easiest way for us, wherever you are in the country, we have a national footprint, footprint uh, through all the provinces and territories. And the best way, wherever you are, uh, wherever your listener is, is to go to www.expera.ca. Uh, and from there, you know, there's the contact tab. And wherever you are, whatever province you are, you click on there. It's going to take you right down regionally to your closest city, your closest office. It'll give you the names uh, of the people that you need to be getting in touch with. You need our services. So that's the best way to get hold of us is go directly to our Xperia website. And I'll let Brandon uh, tell you where to find him. Okay. Thanks, uh, Desmond. Yeah, Terry, uh, we're, we're in the same boat with that. So www.perio.ca. So that'll take us. Uh, to our website and in that website you actually have uh, all our employee profiles so you can actually go through everyone's resume uh, and see what expert you need and what credentials they have so wonderful you can look say hey do i need a uh, <clears throat> i've had an avenue where i've started to uh, comment on fire department response so we have that avenue and and from my background i can bring something like that to the table that's a little bit unique um, we have two other fire investigators that are both XOFM investigators. We have electrical engineers, structural engineers, uh, environmentals. We have uh, one um, individual that uh, is an expert on smoke and smoke deposits uh, to see what kind of cleaning needs to be done. And uh, I don't know a lot about this, but we have a COVID cleaning um specialist uh, on staff as well now. Wow, okay. All right. Well, that's that's I think we got all the bases covered there, guys. Perfect. Well, thank you, Terry. Thanks for having us both. I really appreciate the time and uh, talking with us. Uh, we really appreciate it. Thanks, Terry. Yeah, no worries. Thank you very much, guys. Thanks for being on the podcast. We'll have you back again uh, sooner than later. And I appreciate your time and uh, enjoy the rest of your day, guys. All right, once again, guys, thanks so much for listening to today's podcast. Thanks to Brandon and Desmond for being on the show. And don't forget, if you want to be on the trivia show, email Kieran at Doherty664.com, and uh, we'll get you on the show. And uh, look forward to listening to uh, Desmond and maybe Brandon again, future podcast with regards to some new exciting tips for investigating fraud.